This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Israel is blamed for blocking aid deliveries to Gaza, an accusation the government denies. So, what mechanisms are in place for Israel to ensure food and humanitarian assistance reaches the millions of people the UN says are at risk of starvation? I'm Mohammed Amjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. Joining us from London is Andreas Krieg, an associate professor of security studies at King's College London. He specializes in security and strategy in the Middle East. In occupied East Jerusalem is Sarah Davies, spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Israel and the occupied territories. The ICRC has operated in the region since 1967. And in Oslo, Raymond Johansson is the secretary general of Norwegian People's Aid, which has provided humanitarian assistance in the Gaza Strip for more than 35 years. He's also a former Norwegian state secretary for foreign affairs. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Sarah, let me start with you today. Could you explain to our viewers just how the ICRC is involved in the ongoing efforts to get more aid into Gaza? For example, what exactly does the ICRC um, do as far as speaking with specific bodies, negotiating with specific Israeli government bodies, and what kind of access are you getting? Thank you so much for having me on. So, firstly, I think it's it's very important just to clarify that as the International Committee of the Red Cross, we are not negotiating as such, but we do, of course, engage with parties to the conflict as well as other actors, other institutions, other states, um, and really anyone who has influence over this, this situation. We are heavily focused on our humanitarian diplomacy, which does include speaking directly to the parties to this conflict, including, of course, Israel and Hamas, um, and reminding them of, first and foremost, their obligations under international humanitarian law. For Israel, as the occupying power uh, in Gaza, in the occupied Palestinian territory, they have the, the obligation to ensure that civilians have access to necessities, things like food and, and safe drinking water, as well as shelter. Uh, these are all part of our, our ongoing discussions with them um, and the, the relationships that we've built having been here for so many decades. Sarah, obviously the ICRC has a very long history of difficult negotiations with warring parties around the world. This is according to these long-held principles of the organization. How does this compare? What we're seeing in Gaza, the kinds of discussions that you're having right now, when it comes to humanitarian diplomacy, how much more difficult is it compared to other conflicts in the past? So, yeah, as you said, we have worked in, in many different conflicts all over the world. I think every conflict has its own challenges. Uh, but this particular conflict, as we have all seen, uh, has had a very intense uh, few months of hostilities. And this has severely impacted the people, the civilians on the ground in Gaza who, you know, are not part of this fight. Uh, we have seen as well in this day and age the, the very fast spread of information 
uh, on social media, which unfortunately can have an impact on uh, states and, and authorities and other organizations' um, knowledge of the situation. Uh, and unfortunately, it does have an impact at times uh, on our operations on the ground. As I said, we have long-standing relationships with uh, both Hamas and Israel as the parties to this conflict. And while I can't go into the, the content of that discussion as, as a, dis a discrete organization, as that neutral organization that we are, we are regularly in contact with them, uh, consistently discussing all different aspects of this conflict, of this conflict, our concerns, what we're seeing on the ground, and, and we will continue to do so. Raymond, what mechanisms are in place for Israel to ensure food and humanitarian assistance reaches the millions of people that the UN say are at risk of starvation in Gaza? First of all, I think it's uh, important to say that uh, overstaff in Gaza, they are, as from other organizations, displaced themselves. And uh, most of our people are from Gaza City and uh, uh, but for the time being, the resources is very limited. They are doing their best to set setting up some latrines and uh, for women and children. And uh, at the same time, we find that the aid workers are subjects to direct attack. And uh, so are also the health institutions, the humanitarian sites. And so it's extremely difficult for the time being to do any humanitarian assistance. And uh, as the representatives from the Israeli government say that there are no food shortages in Gaza, that's of course free fantasy. It is food uh, shortage in Gaza. And even before the 7th of October, 80% of the population in Gaza was dependent on aid. And now with the blockades and just the Rafa crossing and the Kerem Shalom crossing operate with a minimum capacity with a lot of restriction. It sets itself, the bombing must stop and it, we have to open up for more sites uh, to bring in humanitarian assistance. And uh, it's extremely difficult uh, situation for uh, the people who live on a very, very mm. small area, which is different from other conflict. This is small, small area with two million people in the biggest prisons prison in the world. Mm. So it, uh, it, we, it's important to take that into account as well. Raymond, let me follow up with you about another point. Uh, the Palestinian Red Crescent is warning that a, that a number of people in Gaza have died as a result of Israel's deliberate starvation and famine in Gaza. Is, is what we are seeing now, from your perspective, is it war by starvation and, and are Israel's actions causing famine? Of course, that's the consequence of the, the bombing. That's the consequence of the lack of access for humanitarian uh, uh, assistance. And we saw also the northern part of Gaza is now basically an IDF military zone. So it means that it's also difficult or almost impossible to, to go back to see if there's possible to find, uh, to harvest some food, to find some food. The fishery, it's impossible. So they totally depend on humanitarian assistance. 
Uh, Andreas, uh, we heard in Dimitri's report earlier, uh, uh, he was talking about a body known as COGAT. Uh, that's short for the Coordination of Government Activities in the Territories. It's a unit of the Israeli Defense Department. I want to ask you more specifically, what is COGAT and how does it work? Right. I mean, COGAT sounds civilian, but as you already said, is a unit in the Ministry of Defense. It's run by the military. It's run by a military officer. It's staffed by military officers, and it's an executive body of the IDF to actually implement occupation. So we have to understand that, obviously, occupation was supposed to be phased out after Oslo. It didn't happen. So this was sort of an interim body to facilitate the military, the civilian side of the military occupation. But COGAT responds and answers to the military. Uh, it's, part, it's, it's answering to a military body and the central command. It implements military strategy, so it's not a civilian body. Um, and as such, also, we see that it's obviously responsible for all the choke points, for all the flows of data, of people, of aid, uh, of goods, financial services, anything that goes in and out of the occupied territories, and that includes the West Bank and Gaza. And as such, it's in many ways, when it comes to Gaza, the, the prison gatekeeper, because it kind of keeps the gates and controls the most important choke, choke points for aid uh, for people, for capital, for any sort of flows going in and out of Gaza and whatever goes through the rougher crossing, which they now control increasingly as well, uh, is, also, is, is, is usually not controlled by COGAT, but is, is, is punished when it goes through there. So they're trying to implement, they've tried to create a situation where they control flows of people in particular there as well. But it's absolutely a pivotal point and an ele a, a crucial element of military occupation. And the fact that they control everything that goes to uh, the Eretz crossing, as well as Kerma Shalom in the south, and, and enforcing, as that's very important, enforcing forcing the blockade, means that they're very much uh, uh, not just complicit, but they're a crucial part of that blockade. They're crucial in controlling that territory. And that makes the IDF and the military and the Ministry of Defense as well uh, very much a, a party that occupies the Gaza Strip, even if they don't control the day-to-day -day operations on the ground. You should, maybe in, a, in, a, in terms of uh, illustrating that, I would say that COGAT is in many ways the national government, while what Hamas is doing domestically is more like a municipality government, because they're completely tied and controlled by what COGAT is doing in terms of information flows, flows of people and flows of uh, money and goods. So, Andreas, if we can follow this train of thought a little bit further. Israel is being blamed by many aid agencies for blocking aid deliveries to Gaza. Of course, the Israeli government denies those accusations. But then you also have COGAT, officials with COGAT, who are saying essentially that the problem doesn't lie with them, that the problem lies with international organizations. Uh, and they say that international organizations need to do more to ensure the flow of aid into Gaza. How do you make sense of these statements from COGAT leadership saying that the UN could do more to get aid in? Essentially, pushing blame onto the U.N. or other NGOs or aid agencies, while, while as you're saying, they're actually the ones in control. No, I mean, this is obviously a, a, a part of that information campaign. It's a way of deflecting responsibility away from COGAT. COGAT has been on a, on a massive information campaign in the United States with some of their senior members uh, going around, speaking to people and saying, look, we're doing everything that we can, but it's not our fault. Uh, in reality, considering that they are the gatekeepers, the prison gatekeepers of Gaza, in many ways they do control what's going on. And it's, it's part of that information campaign that we've seen in Western capitals run by Israeli information networks to kind of blame the U.N 
and, and UN agencies are saying they're insufficient, they're undermined by Hamas, they're, they're, they're complicit in whatever is going on, uh, whatever happened on the 7th of, uh, of October. Uh, and so that's part of that information campaign, and COGAT is part, is integrated into that overall strategy. But COGAT isn't a strategic, so it's still, because it reports to the military, it's not a civilian institution that is next to the military, it is answering to the same military strategy. And as Raymond said already before, military or uh, humanitarian aid has become weaponized. It has become a tool of statecraft, a tool of warfare by the Israelis. And Kogak, therefore, has become part of that same military strategy of uh, attacking not just Hamas and the Hamas infrastructure, but also the civilians that live in Gaza. And, and as such, Kogat is very much complicit in that. Uh, and I would see any of these kind of information campaigns as part of a wider effort to discredit international, the international community and the, especially NGOs and the humanitarian um, uh, community. Raymond, I saw you nodding along to a lot of what Andreas was saying there. It looked like you wanted <coughs> yeah. to jump in. Please go ahead. Yeah, I just want to, to drop in, and uh, I think it's fair also to, to mention uh, the catastrophic impact of freezing of funds to UNRWA. UNRWA was responsible for all the infrastructure for receiving uh, humanitarian assistance into Gaza, and obviously the freezing funds uh, that UNRWA is not able to do their work. They have also been very instrumental to the rest of the humanitarian family because they had the infrastructure. So uh, no 20 countries or, or so uh, still are freezing the funds. So this is very, very dramatic. And that's also uh, the part of the ongoing PR campaign that everyone who has been involved in Gaza from the humanitarian side, if it's NGOs, if it's UN, they to blame and indirectly say that they are supporting groups that we are not supporting because we are doing the humanitarian assistance. And we're trying to build up and strengthen the civil democratic society, which is also a prerequisite for trying to find a more peaceful solution. First, we also have to strengthen that because it will not be sustainable if we are just flushing in a lot of aid without any control. And we know that uh, in Gaza these days, uh, the law and order, of course, it's uh, almost impossible to, to prevail. So uh, we need access at the same time to see that we are partners that are doing our best to trying to save lives in extreme critical situation for the population in Gaza these days. Sarah, before October 7th, you had around 500 trucks of aid that would enter Gaza daily. And, and even then, most of the population depended on humanitarian assistance. Of course, things have grown much more dire, and the uh, drop-off, it's been precipitous when it comes to the number of trucks that go in. Everyone knows not enough relief is getting into Gaza. What are the priorities right now, and why isn't it getting to the people who need it? There definitely is, is not enough uh, entry of aid into Gaza right now. For us at the International Committee of the Red Cross, one of the, the main priorities is medical care, medical supplies and medical equipment. Right now, there is, I would say, no functioning health system in Gaza, and there are increasing concerns and increasing rates uh, of things like infectious diseases on top of those who have been wounded and require ongoing care, ongoing dressing changes. You know, people already lived with chronic diseases and disabilities before the 7th of October, before this escalation began. There are still people who require their regular medication, things like 
uh, dialysis and, and cancer treatment, chemotherapy, uh, that has now been uh, had immense pressure added to it because there are so many thousands of people who have been severely wounded, who are exposed to the elements uh, in Gaza right now, living in tents uh, in a very small area in, in about 20% of the entirety of the Gaza Strip. And this is really just a, a hotbed uh, of, of public health concerns. I think there are many challenges uh, and many reasons why supplies are not reaching people. The first is that there is such a, a vast array of needs. You know, individual people, individual families have different needs. And to even be able to, to go through that and try and address each need uh, is, is a challenge in and of itself. There are, of course, the security concerns. Um, our team has been impacted by, by security uh, incidents. Mm. Our team was, uh, unfortunately, in November fired upon. I know other humanitarian organisations have, have had similar incidents. Uh, and the logistics. There are no passable roads in Gaza or very few passable roads. They're littered with rubble. There are the uh, concerns of unexploded ordinances mm. hiding in this rubble that, that people are not, uh, are not able to tell uh, where it is. And, and, of course, there is very little access to those civilians who are still uh, in the north. Sarah, let me also ask you, you're talking about, you know, the logistics and how difficult it is. And, and on that note, there are reports now that the UK and Canada have started to airdrop supplies to northern Gaza because they say it's impossible to get aid in there. From your perspective, is that a sustainable or efficient way of delivering aid? And, and is it really impossible to the extent that that's the only way that aid could get in? So airdrops are something that we at the ICRC have used in the past in, in different conflicts around the world. Um, and we're, we're very uh, pleased, of course, that this means that some in the north will receive uh, the medical supplies that I believe were dropped. But drops, airdrops do come with their own you know, set of challenges. Um, apart from the logistics, things like that there needs to be uh, large areas that are not filled with people uh, that do not have objects in the way. Um, it is it is a very expensive, and so therefore I'm unsure mm. how sustainable that would be for, for multiple uh, attempts. Um, you know, there's always the, the small uh, potential that things break on impact. It really depends on what's in these airdrops. Is it is it medical equipment that's very sensitive? Is it supplies? Is it bags of rice or flour? Uh, there are their own challenges with airdrops. Uh, on the on the impossibility of gaining access to the north, I don't know if I would call it impossible in a general sense, but safely, absolutely not right now. It's, it's very complex. It's very challenging for any organisations to to go to the north uh, or return from the north. This is, as I said, there's, there's all those logistics like the, the rubble, the unexploded ordinances, but it is an active conflict zone. Still, there is still fighting ongoing. There are still, mm. you know, missiles and rockets flying back and forth. There is mm -hmm. at times hand-to-hand -hand combat, fighting in different areas. Mm -hmm. Telecommunications is a huge challenge for teams to be able to even even communicate uh, their pathways where they are. That's a that's a really big challenge um, for anyone who is attempting to mm -hmm. to gain access to the north right now. Andreas, I want to explore a bit more about Kogat, because this is a complicated issue, and there is a lot of confusion about how exactly 
aid gets in. Uh, we were talking earlier about COGAT being a, a body within the defense ministry. You were saying it's part of the military structure. From your perspective, would things be at all easier if something like COGAT were shifted under a civilian-controlled structure? Or would that perhaps complicate things further, maybe even politicize the matter further? No, in a normal country, in a normal liberal democracy, I would say, yes, this sort of uh, agency should be under civilian control, shouldn't be run by the military. Uh, when you look at, um, you know, the, the, what happened in our counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan executed by Western countries, we kind of try to shift governance back to a civilian body fairly swiftly. Um, the problem in Israel is obviously, and there has been quite a lot of debate in, in recent months, to kind of shift Colgat away from the Ministry of Defense to uh, no, no less, no one uh, less than uh, the Minister of Finance, uh, Schmortich, who himself is obviously a settler. He's a convicted, uh, 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 he's a convicted uh, uh, offender as well in that space and obviously is highly politicized, has a, has a huge interest in making sure that COGAT is actually no longer cooperating. And as we are criticizing COGAT quite rightly for what it does as a gatekeeper to let aid in to Gaza, it thinks would be far worse if COGAT was not controlled by the military, but would actually be controlled by a highly politicized uh, ministry, such as the Ministry of Finance, which would respond to a, a radical like Schmortich, who, in his own views, would love to uh, continue with ethnic cleansing, uh, mm. kind of create a situation where Gazans would no longer be able and allowed to live in the Gaza Strip and mm. would instrumentalize Kogat for exactly that same reason, hence why the military has been pushing back. Uh, Raymond, um, there is confusion uh, when it comes to reporting how much aid is actually getting into Gaza. There seem to be a lot of discrepancies in the numbers that have been posted and reported by different bodies. How difficult is it to actually decipher how many aid trucks are getting into Gaza these days? Earlier in the discussions today, we heard that usually before the 7th of October, it was 500 trucks each day. No, it's some days it's no trucks. Some other days it's up to 20, maybe 100, and then down to zero the day after. So the overall perspective is that there is a limit of uh, humanitarian assistance. It's almost nothing. So I think... It's a saying, in war, the first victim is the truth. And this is also the truth in this war. We're trying to say that, well, it's not that serious. It's not the blockade. It's still, uh, as we heard in the earlier discussion today, there are no food shortage in Gaza. Of course, what is the consequence? 30,000 have been killed. They have been killed since 7th of October. Mm. 80% were depend on that, that. So it's limitation. It's difficulties. But we, we know that it's coming. Raymond. Some, yes. Raymond, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We just have about a minute and a half left. I also want to ask you about the fact that when it comes to the concern about being able to operate in Gaza and distribute aid, we heard in the last couple of days that the World Food Program is going to be halting aid deliveries in the northern part of Gaza. How much concern is there about that right now? And, and do you believe that perhaps even Norwegian People's Aid will have to halt distribution of aid in the north of Gaza because of security concerns, too, going forward? Yeah, that's true. We hope that it will. We need some more international humanitarian workers into Gaza. We think that also for security reasons, it will be good. We have heard news about that bird food program uh, that they have in pipeline food for two two months more to go. Uh, 
which is uh, possible, but uh, but still access is the main problem. Now we have to see that both areas crossing near Gaza City must be open, Karni crossing can be open, and at the same time we have Rafa crossing and Kerem Shalom crossing, which mm. is necessary because it's limited access for the people who lives in Gaza to move from north to south and east to west, so mm. we need to have more, more access. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Andreas Krieg, Sarah Davies, and Raymond Johansson. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Dmitry Medvedenko, Veronica Pedrosa, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Renjith Kurian. The program was edited by Romel Asuncion, Linda Nguyen, Vanessa Keneally, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, Israel is once more under scrutiny by the International Court of Justice. This time, it's the occupation itself that's on trial. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.